Hi, welcome to Arguably. I'm Ross Anderson, and today, in this debut episode, we're talking about prize. I have mixed feelings on it. It's a month that says just because your sexuality or gender expression isn't like the straight majority, there's nothing to be ashamed of. You can celebrate loving how you love, being who you are. And the month is chosen in homage to the Stonewall Riots, where a group of young gay men gradually got sick of being exploited and put upon and put up a stink. That event sparks the gay rights movement of the 1970s, which convinced a homophobic culture to accept them for who they are and allows for these marches today. That's wonderful. On the flip side, though, an obsession with identity is politically harmful and culturally boring. Being gay doesn't tell me anything about who you are as a person or what you're like other than who you're attracted to. And why should anyone care? The goal of gay liberation was that people wouldn't give a damn whether you were straight or gay, because neither is better or worse than each other. Sexual orientation is only relevant when people are being oppressed or discriminated against. So why should it be a big cultural issue? This isn't to deny the significance of gay art and history. But then again, pride isn't much help there. Some of our greatest philosophers, scientists, artists, and novelists are gay. Pride consists of corporate banners and constant rainbows. It's all just a bit childish and oversensitive and condescending, as Bradley Snellis wrote best in his brilliant 2013 Out Magazine essay in the reign of the gay magical elves. Can you remember the last Pride fashion collection that was at all interesting? When gays are failing in fashion, something is really wrong. Worst of all, the corporations and worthless nonprofits like Glad rake in tons of money. Pride does nothing to help gay people who are actively being persecuted. Your Smirnoff-sponsored street party does nothing to help the gay men being hanged in Iran. And yet, when McDonald's releases a new Pride commercial, like the one they did this year, I found it really sweet. And it's really nice to see how much we've changed and that we can accept people. Pride, gay culture, and gay history are complex and rarely handle the nuance and research required. There are many falsehoods, misconceptions, and myths, but also unsung heroes or unfairly demonized people. My guest, Jamie Kerchick, does a better job than almost anyone else in correcting that. Jamie is a journalistic legend. If you work in the industry, you know this man. He started at the New Republic, where he famously exposed the extremist racist newsletters published by future presidential candidate Ron Paul. He's an expert in foreign policy, reporting alongside legends like Hitchens in the Middle East, and was famously kicked off the propaganda channel Russia Today after he protested their country's persecution of gay people. Well, Harvey Firestein, who's a very famous American playwright and actor, he said that being silent in the face of evil is something that we can't do. And so in you know, being here on a Kremlin-funded propaganda network, I'm going to wear my uh, gay pride suspenders and I'm going to speak out. Um, against the horrific anti-gay legislation that Vladimir Putin has signed into law that was passed unanimously by the Russian Duma uh, that, that criminalizes homosexual propaganda, that effect- effectively makes it illegal to talk about homosexuality in public. We've seen yes. a state of violent attacks on gay people yeah, Trace, in Russia. Of course, we'll discuss uh, it later, but... A, a state what about- of, viol- of, of 
What about Bradley Manning first? I, you know, I don't, I'm not really interested in talking about Bradley Manning. Uh -huh. I'm interested in talking about the horrific environment of homophobia in Russia right now. And, and to let the Russian gay people know that they, have, that they have friends and allies and solidarity from people all over the world. And that we're not going to be silent in the face of this horrific repression that is perpetrated by, the pay, by your paymasters, by Vladimir Putin. Oh, that's, I see. What, that's what I'm here to talk about. All right. Um, yes, that's what I'm here to talk about. And I don't know he currently works as a columnist at Tablet Magazine and as a writer at large for Airmail. There, he wrote an incredible profile of Army Hammer. There, he wrote an incredible profile of the actor Army Hammer, telling the actor's side his tale and revealing just how flimsy those career-destroying allegations were. The weaponization of fetish against Hammer resonated with many gay men. And Kershik is extremely well-versed in the history of such persecution, having spent 10 years writing his brilliant New York Times best-selling book, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. He also happens to be gay, but that's the least interesting thing about him. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. I think it was a great episode. I disagree with Jamie at points, but that's the whole damn point. I think you'll learn a lot. I think it'll make you think a lot. And I really want to hear what you think. Enjoy. Jamie Kerchik, welcome to Arguably. Thank you for having me. First question. With the chief fights for legal equality and social tolerance over in the United States, Pride has largely become a sort of month-long corporate-sponsored festival of rainbow positivity. So my main question is, does Pride have any value? Does this have any function anymore? Yes, I do. I think in a sense, the nature of being a homosexual still is you have to live in hiding for some part of your life, right? The whole notion of coming out is something that every gay person has to do. Fortunately, they're doing it a lot younger now, and people are not staying closeted for so long. But there are still people who do suffer and have trouble with their identity. And to have what used to be a weekend or a day, now it's an entire month, where you have corporations and institutions and individuals expressing their support for a community whose people for far too long really had to live in hiding. I do think it's important. I do think it's important for gay people, particularly young gay people, to see that they have support in their broader culture, in their community. I do think it's gone a little too far. We can probably get, get into that. I don't think I need to see every store and every institution proclaiming its support now, especially considering that it would have been a lot more useful 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, really just in the past year or two, I feel like it's become very fashionable and really low cost or almost no cost for these institutions to proclaim their pride. So I'm not really sure how meaningful it is, but I do think that its, it's existence is still necessary. Related to that lack of skin in the game, many corporations are infamous for changing their Twitter icon or their Instagram icon to a big rainbow logo in American and British and German accounts, not so much in their Saudi accounts or their Chinese accounts, which tend to keep the original. Is there actually any harm in that, though? I think counterintuitively, it highlights that these countries are still very homophobic and a video game company changing its logo to have a rainbow flag on it won't do anything to change anything. I think there is harm in it in that these corporations are not being entirely truthful with their audiences. It's low cost or almost no cost to proclaim your pride if you're Mercedes-Benz in Germany or Western Europe, the United States. It has more meaning and it has more impact 
in countries where homosexuality is illegal and in some cases punishable by death. I understand that that might hurt their bottom line. And I don't really expect these corporations to be going around identifying with LGBT pride. So at the end of the day, why is Mercedes-Benz even doing this in Saudi Arabia? Who cares what Mercedes-Benz thinks about homosexuality in the Arab world? So it seems a little purposeless, but I do think it does reveal, I guess, how far we have to go and how there is a huge cultural gap still on this issue. And in fact, for all the complaints, and I say the hysteria, frankly, that some gay rights groups are whipping up about, about the condition of what it's like to be a gay person in the West. I mean, for instance, the largest gay rights group in the United States last week issued a state of emergency for gay people in the United States, which, you know, I'm leaving my house every day and I'm not concerned about being attacked by anybody. If there's anywhere where it would be a state of emergency, it's a place like Saudi Arabia or, I mean, there's a whole list of dozens of countries where it's illegal to be gay. So you would think that our energies and our anger and our activism would be better served perhaps on those countries rather than complaining about, you know, sexually explicit book that's been removed from a school library does not seem to me to be a massive infringement on the rights of gay people. In your 2019 tablet piece, Transgendering Stonewall, you debunk the claims that a trans woman of color threw the first brick or shot glass at Stonewall when, in fact, Stonewall was a home of white gay men. And the two candidates frequently given credit for this weren't there or weren't there at least at the beginning. So why has this myth been so persistent? Nobody legitimate really claims this is real. The main sources on this don't claim it was so. Why is this stuck around? I think that there are several reasons. It actually goes back to the 90s. I did some research on this in terms of when this first started emerging, which was around the time that the transgender movement was trying to affix itself to the gay movement. There's this myth having to do with Stonewall, that the trans movement was always a part of the gay movement and that they were sort of ignored or deliberately obscured by the evil, hatest gay white man. But it really wasn't until the 90s any sort of organized transgender block tried to attach itself to the lesbian and gay movement. And it was around that time that this mythology started to be taking place. And I was just reading a collection of essays that was published by a man named Michael Denny, who was a very important gay publisher. And he was a left liberal in New York, was at Stonewall, and was writing in the 1990s about these attempts by radical left-wingers to rewrite the history and inserting trans women of color at the forefront. And he actually likened it to the sort of Stalinist historians who Mm. would erase certain people once they fell into disfavor from the history books. And that's basically what's been going on. So a specific part is that there is a radical transgender movement that is trying to foist a certain set of, I would say, very unpopular ideas and that wants to implicate gay and lesbian people in this push. For instance, medical transitions for children, biological men and women's sports, a whole litany of things that we're arguing about now. They want to implicate gay men and women in that fight. So they're basically trying to guilt them into saying, we were the real ones who launched this movement. For you, you've been stealing all the credit for all these years. You owe us your freedom. And therefore, you have to support us now. It's emotional blackmail. And unfortunately, it works on a lot of gay people because a lot of gay people are just progressive left-wingers and they 
want to be nice. They want to be tolerant. They want to be accepting. And so this works on them. It's kind of like a battered wife syndrome where she keeps on coming back. The gay community just gets beat up by the kind of radical trans activists called all these names, you know, gay white men are racist, they're misogynistic, they're transphobic and whatnot. And it, it works on a lot of them. And so when a tactic like that works, you keep on using it again. And then there's this other sort of broader leftist progressive tendency to impute virtue to individuals based on their identity traits. And I actually wrote a piece about this a year ago for Tablet it's called the Rocks, Paper, Scissors of Identity Politics. And it's very simple, right? It's like you have cisgender is on top, trans is the subaltern, right? And then you have white is on top is the oppressor, black or people of color are the subaltern and the oppressed. Men are the oppressive patriarchal forces on top. Women are the subaltern. So you're literally taking the most, according to this inverted pyramid of power, you're taking the most marginalized group, the trans the people of color, the women. It's that identity. And it has been decided that, that the left is going to attribute the most virtue to these people, that they are the most value, they are the most important, they are the most sacred beings in our society. It's the trans woman of color. It's almost like a deity, the way that this mythical person is written about and talked about, not as an individual, as a collective, the trans women of color. And the gay white man, according to that metric, is, is the worst. And so it doesn't matter that the Stonewall bar was largely a bar for gay white men. You can see this in the photographs and you can see it in the documentation in the media at the time, in the interviews. And, you know, I wrote this piece that I, and I wasn't reporting anything new in that piece. I was just going through the history, rec, you know, the historical record and, and condensing it for an audience. So in order to deny this truth, you have to lie. And that's, that's what it is. That's, that's, that's basically what it is. And I'm kind of grown tired of repeating it. It gets worse and worse every June. More and more people just spout this without any sort of understanding of the actual history. It doesn't matter how many times people throw my article out and try to correct the record. It just seems to, you know, just to grow more and more each, each year. The one explanation I've heard for the narrative that underlies a lot of this is that white gay men weren't at the front of gay liberation because they could sit at the back because they could sort of hide. Whereas if you were a trans person, if you were a gay person of color, this just wasn't as convenient or, or able to. So they had to fight for their rights. But I don't see that in the records. You don't see notable black men in the gay rights movement. You don't see trans people that often. There are notable lesbian scholars and activists in the 1960s, but they tended to be focused on feminism, not on gay rights. And then if you look to these sort of history books of notable gay figures like Kramer, Harvey Milk, Peter Tatchell, Andrew Sullivan, they're all, and the hero of your book, Frank Kameny, they're all white men. Many of them Jews, too, by the way. Many of them Jews, too. Why is that? Is this an effect of the canon where there are figures who were minority that w most people don't know about? Or was it sort of a social status that allowed it? I'm curious what the explanation for this is. Well, I think like most things in American society for the 20th century were just dominated by white men, period. Leave out the gay side, look at government, look at culture. And we're reckoning with this now. And that's one of the good things I would say of the past couple of years of the Great Awakening is that we are reckoning with this, right? The fact that 
that white men have dominated things, you know, our entire culture and society and politics for too long, right? And we can say that it's gone overboard. For instance, you know, the Academy Awards instituting these diversity quotas, I think, is the wrong way to address this problem. But no one can doubt and no one can really dispute that white men had an unfair advantage in America. Straight white men have had an unfair advantage in American society and that we should absolutely try to correct that by offering equal opportunity to individuals regardless of their sex, race, gender. That, I think, is ultimately what America is supposed to be about, really what Western liberalism is supposed to be about. The gay movement was not untouched by the broader reality of American society. There was misogyny within the early gay rights movement. Like the lesbians and the gay men did not get along because the women felt that they were being bossed around, being made to literally make coffee at the early meetings of like the Gay Liberation Front or the Madison Society. The men took charge. The women were right. The gay movement was not this utopian place. There was racism, absolutely, in the gay community. There still is racism in, within the gay community. That's how I would explain it. Like most things in American society and culture, white men had a disproportionate influence. And that's just the reality. And it's not one that I'm, it's certainly not one that I'm defending, but it's just the way things were. The answer to it isn't to rewrite history. It's to be very honest about history and then... Right. In fact, you could make an argument that this rewriting of history with Stonewall is actually doing a disservice to the issues of racial justice and trans rights because it's it's obscuring the fact that a lot of gay bars were not formally racially segregated, but were informally were, right? And that there weren't a lot of Black and Hispanic people were hanging out at the Stonewall because they didn't feel welcome there. Because there were gay white men who were giving a sort of attitude, or there was a sort of atmosphere that was not welcoming. And that's the more uncomfortable truth, but it's the truth. And I have to think it does more to help the progressive cause if they can actually be honest about this, to actually look at the actual history. In The Secret City, you write about the view that homosexuality was as a national security risk. It's sort of a core theme in the book, namely that to be gay was such a disturbing, life-destroying secret during this time that you were of great risk to blackmail. And this is somewhat understandable logic, if self-fulfilling. There were justified homophobic concerns that only exist because of a culture of homophobia. And if you looked at Britain in the 1960s, blackmail rackets were quite common. Why didn't you see notable gay traitors? It makes sense that there should be. And yet you document case over case where people are given the opportunity to be traitors and immensely bravely do the hard thing and go the other direction. Yeah. I haven't really been asked this question, which is interesting. Um, but yes, there was a study done in the early 90s of almost every case of Americans found guilty of espionage, about 120, some, some such. Only six were gay, but none of them had done it under inducement by blackmail. They'd done it for more quotidian reasons of money. Or, That's about the percentage of the population anyway. Right, right. But none of them had done it for blackmail for this reason that became justification for excluding gay people. I mean, I would think maybe it had to do something with the fact that, look, if you were a gay person and you were working in the government, you were trying to get a job in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, up until 1995, by the way, which is when Bill Clinton lifted the security clearance, you knew that you were taking a bigger risk, just being gay, that you were taking a bigger risk than your straight counterparts because your existence could 
become a real serious problem. And so I think that to do that, to be a gay person and to get a job in the State Department or any job in the government where you would have had access to secret information, you're already attracting a certain type of gay person who has a lot of integrity, who has a lot of personal courage and strength, right? This isn't just a, a gay person who's going to go work in the theater in Manhattan, you know, which is relatively open at that time for gay people. This is a real risky thing that you are undertaking. And so I think you're naturally selecting, you're getting a group of gay men and women who are pretty tough, right? And so they already know that they could be set up in certain situations. And I think that kind of screens out the type of person who, if they got caught in some kind of KGB honey trap, that they would give information to the Soviets to protect their secret. That's probably off the top of my head. That's probably part of the reason. You mentioned the very famous British case of Guy Burgess, who was not a spy because he had been blackmailed. He was an ideological traitor. He's an almost mythical character. And what's interesting with him is I think once he is exposed and he becomes this kind of mythological character, that's when the arguments about gays representing a national security threat, it goes from being their blackmail liabilities to, oh, they're also ideologically predisposed to be communist traitors. Because look at this Burgess character. He's been an open homosexual since the 1930s. Everyone knows he's gay. He's got this loud mouth telling everyone about all the guys he's screwing with. And it has to do with his homosexuality is a part of his subversiveness. He's a subversive because he's gay. He's gay because he's subversive. These things go together. Burgess becomes this massive character in the minds of anyone who's sort of politically attuned in this time. You begin to associate the homosexual in Western society with Guy Burgess. He's this louche, far-left communist subversive. Like that, be he becomes, in the minds of American journalists, political people, and intelligence professionals, like any gay person becomes a potential Burgess. You mentioned earlier that the Manhattan theater scene was a more open place in New York. Generally, it was quite a bit of a gay hub, and same with, obviously, San Francisco. What I find interesting in your book is that Washington was full of gay people, and yet the whole environment was very paranoid, very sort of closeted. I'm curious, sort of two questions then. One, why was it so gay? And two, given that it was so gay, why didn't it have this greater social progress that you would expect in other areas where there is a gay subculture? I think it was so gay because, first of all, it was a city. And the story of gay people in America, and really gay people, I think, in everywhere in the 20th century is one of urbanization. It's gay people leaving small provincial areas where everyone knows your business and moving to a place where you can be more anonymous. You can find other people like you and you can do that in a city. And so that's part of it. There's also the best little boy in the world syndrome, which was based on a book that came out in the early 1970s. It's really a memoir. It's called The Best Little Boy in the World. And it's about a certain type of gay man who... Of, of that generation, really up until very recently, I would say, where because of the closet, because gay boys cannot, because they're not chasing girls, they are putting all their efforts into extracurricular activities and they become really overachievers academically, extracurricularly, 
you might say Pete Buttigieg is almost the archetype of that. Someone who came out quite late in life, a Rhodes Scholar, learning eight languages, and we all know how amazing he is, right? He really is the picture of this best little boy in the world. He's channeling all that kind of sexual energy that straight guys, they're out some of their wild oats, you know, in their teen years, right? A lot of gay boys are not doing that. They're seeking fulfillment elsewhere. So those character traits are very attractive in Washington. You can go very far. And part of it also, I think, is the secrecy at the time made gay people and gay men in particular, made them very loyal in a kind of perverse way because they didn't want to get exposed. And so they were really willing to go above and beyond and to do whatever it was that the boss wanted. You know, the congressman, you know, you're a lot of gay men on Capitol Hill working as staff assistants, chiefs of staff, press secretaries. They're very dependable. They don't have families. They don't have a wife and child to go home to at night so they can answer that phone call at 2 a.m. if need be. They can rush to the boss's side. They're always there. So Washington attracts that type of person. And there are traits that many gay men in particular are almost predisposed to have in much higher proportion than straight men. And so that's the reason why DC was so gay. The reason why you don't get much activism is because the people I just described to you are not really revolutionary activist types. They're small C conservative types. Even people working for liberal Democrats on the Hill, they believe in the institutions and in the system. And so what it took was a guy like Frank Kameny, someone who did stick this description that I've made, right? He's a PhD astronomer from Harvard, and he's fired by the federal government. He's working for the Army Map Service in 1957, and he's fired because he's gay. And he just had this singular character, and I knew him. And he was just an extremely stubborn person, like so stubborn that he actually had this crazy notion that when the federal government fired him for being gay in 1957, that he was going to take on the federal government and win. That's how crazily stubborn Frank was. And that's what he did. It took decades and he lived in utter poverty, but he was successful and he had a small band of supporters in the Mattachine Society. But I do think that they punched above their weight. I think Frank as an individual punched above his weight and did not get enough credit for the role that he played. I think we're heavily focused on Harvey Milk in San Francisco and ACT UP in New York and whatnot. But, you know, those cities were not, they weren't the seat of the federal government. Washington, D.C. is where the government is located and it's where power is located and where the decisions are made. And so I think that just by showing up to work every day in these congressional offices, in these federal agencies where, where decisions were being made, just the regular kind of gay and lesbian staffers throughout the kind of federal bureaucracy, I think they played a very important role that's sort of unheralded in the history books. People are praised for their identity in a certain way in a modern sort of milieu that we've gone from so much shame that people in the closet to now that simply being of an identity category is praiseworthy. On the other hand, these people were quite remarkable precisely just because they were people. They did their jobs very, very well, and that was what was remarkable, unlike in the culture in San Francisco, where their gayness was such a central part of their identity in that city. Yeah, and I don't think there was much risk. There wasn't as much risk in San Francisco as there was in Washington, D.C. But to be a gay activist in San Francisco, you were not risking your livelihood or your job in the same way that you would if you were living in Washington. Ian McKellen once said that the rapid progress of gay rights was actually a point of concern for him because he sort of was worried that quick changes can provoke very vicious and sustained backlashes. 
I used to think this was overly pessimistic. You wrote a 2019 piece in The Atlantic titled The Struggle for Gay Rights is Over, and I really agreed with it. Today, I'm not quite so sure. So how concerned should we be about the rise of the sort of anti-gay groomer, their transing the kids sort of panic on the right, a very irrational fear? Is, is this a brief culture war flare-up that's going to go away with the election? Or is this a more meaningful kind of reversion? Well, I'm interested what you think on this because I'm having difficulty distinguishing the attacks on sort of radical gender theory and all of that implies and attacks on gay people. I think most of this backlash that we're seeing has to do with the transgender issue. Changes and ideas which are very radical and have just been taking place within the past year, two to three years, without much warning, it's kind of coming out of nowhere. Like this whole new notion of sex being on a spectrum and children being able to choose their gender, knowing their subjective gender identity from a young age. These are things that I'm uncomfortable with as a, as a gay man, right? So I might not like the form that this protest is taking in these various bills and states and the kind of anti-drag hysteria and whatnot. But I'm not sure how much of it is really anti-gay. To the extent that it's anti-gay, I'm worried that it is because people are now beginning to associate the gay movement with the kind of radical trans movement. And they're thinking, oh, it really was a slippery slope from gay marriage to this whole parade of horribles. And I hope that people are able to make the distinctions and that we're able to have a... Absurd, even me just saying this, right? Like, I hope we can have like an adult, nuanced conversation about these issues and be able to distinguish between, you know, civil equality for gay people and introducing abstruse gender theory concepts to third graders. But it seems that that, you know, that horse has left the barn already and that we're not able to have that conversation because we have basically two extremes that have hijacked this conversation. You have a far right represented by Chris Rufo, Matt Walsh, Michael Knowles, who said he wants to eradicate transgenderism, which is heinous rhetoric. And they're taking a very blunt object and just going after everyone. But then you have this woke left that dominates the Democratic Party, the mainstream media, the medical profession, most of our institutions, which has basically gone full bore on radical genders here. And I think most Americans are in the middle, and we know this, and we've seen the polling, and most Americans are pro-gay marriage. They don't believe that children should be allowed to transition. They don't believe that biological men should be able to participate in sports. There really is a broad, moderate, stiffer majority here on these issues. And yet we're not having that. Those voices are not being heard, unfortunately. That's kind of where I think we are. It's hard to say it in a way that doesn't sound like a theoretical, but I think so much back to 2016, and one of the things that really comforted me about the Trump campaign was there's this famous picture of him hugging a gay flag, and that's complete Trump. It's so yeah. absurd, but it got a cheer, yeah. and it was this big, great moment. And yeah. he had the rainbow caps that were selling on the site, and Peter Thiel was at the Republican convention and had this speech that I thought was like a really important moment for sort of gay history in terms of a Republican convention right in front of the president's son saying, I am proud to be gay. 
I am proud to be a Republican. But most of all, I am proud to be an American. Maybe I'm being overly pessimistic. I don't think that would happen to me. I think if Trump released a rainbow MAGA hat on his website for the new campaign, I think that the DeSantis team would slam it down us. And I think if he hugged a rainbow flag at the RNC. If he was hugging the traditional rainbow flag, maybe he'd get credit. It's a good question. But again, I think, yeah, but who's to blame for that? Who's to blame for the fact that the rainbow flag is now perceived as being this symbol of Leah Thomas and the trans woman who flashed her breast at the White House and, you know, every just over the top. I mean, there's that there's that onion story from 20 years ago, the headline gay rights parade sets gay rights movement back 20 years. Right. And it's about this like Midwestern housewife watching the I was all ready to support my neighbors, Adam and Steve. And then I saw these, you know, like weeks on parade wearing nothing but, you know, atlas chaps. That's kind of what I feel like has gone on over the past couple of years. There's this French expression, epite le, le, le bourgeois, to scandalize the bourgeoisie. And that seems to be what the queer, that's the word we haven't even mentioned yet during this conversation, which is that it's not a gay movement anymore. It's a queer movement. And queerness is all about marginality and celebrating marginality, even though how marginal can it be when the CIA and Raytheon and and every and Nike and all these corporations are celebrating you. You're not marginal, okay? But it's really about now kind of shoving the most lewd and frankly distasteful pictures or elements of LGBT life in people's faces. And you look at some of these books that are supposedly being banned in public schools. A lot of them are sexually explicit. They dealt with straight or heterosexual issues and characters. They should also not be taught to young children. This is not necessarily homophobia in a lot of these cases. A lot of this stuff is inappropriate. And so I question if Republican voters were willing to support a guy who was pretty gay friendly and was hugging a pride flag in 2016, like, are they the ones who changed all of a sudden and just became like fanatical homophobes? In the past couple of years, or was there something else going on in American culture that has gotten us to this point where a lot of people, not just right wingers, are feeling uncomfortable about where the whole LGBTQ debate has gone? It's gone beyond civil equality now for people of a different minority sexual orientation or civil equality for trans people. It's gone beyond that. We're now dealing with something else. It's not gay rights. It's not what the gay rights movement used to be about. It's something completely different. There's this very amusing irony, which is you mentioned Michael Knowles earlier, and they tend to come from this Adrian Vermeule school of the idea that the law crafts people. This idea that if you ban sodomy or you ban pornography or you enforce Sabbath laws again, which some of these people have pushed, that people will sort of change with the law. And I find what's so interesting about the gay marriage legalization is that the laws change to allow gay people to have the sort of bourgeois, normal American life that sort of Andrew Sullivan was pushing for. But the law didn't change them. Much of the gay community remained exactly as Larry Kramer was condemning. I find this sort of an amusing tension there between these two. There's always been that element of the gay community that rejected bourgeois values in gay marriage. 
there was a group of them. They signed an open letter called Beyond Merit, right? They were protesting. There was a group, there was a group Queers Against Peace. I mean, the most vocal opposition to beat Buttigieg in the 2020 election was not from the homophobic right. It was from the queer left. So there's always been that strain going back to the gay liberation, going back to Stonewall in the kind of the assimilationist versus the liberationist side of the movement. What happened was, is that the liberationist radical beyond marriage types were not, the gay movement did not pay them heed. They pushed them aside. They kept them contained and they presented a very respectable face. It was respectability politics. All the gay leaders were extremely well-groomed in every test case before the Supreme Court. And I remember James Dale, the Boy Scout, he was the gay scout leader or Eagle Scout who was suing the Boy Scouts because he wasn't allowed to participate. And he was this very handsome guy in a suit and tie. The first couple who brought test cases for gay marriage, equal marriage rights, they were all heavily vetted by these gay groups. They went through these people's backgrounds to make sure that they were thoughtless. It was a very professional, dignified movement because serious things were on the agenda. Once that movement won in 2015 to 2019, which is gay marriage and then the Bostock Supreme Court decision that added gay and trans people to the Civil Rights Act, those kinds of professionals in that generation of gay leaders left. They went on to do other things because one... And then increasingly the movement got kind of taken over by the radicals or just people who need a purpose. I think part of the reason why we're seeing this emergence of the LGBT as a culture war issue today, because I thought it had been settled just a couple of years. Like I wrote that article for the Atlantic, I thought it had been settled. I really do fault the radical left for where we are today. I don't think that conservatives just woke up one morning having already nominated Donald Trump for the presidency, accepting gay marriage at record numbers. Now, a majority of Republicans support gay marriage. It was a conservative Supreme Court that legalized gay marriage and that added gay and lesbian people to the 64 Civil Rights Act. So I just don't think that the right just woke up one morning and decided, oh, we're going to just like restart this culture war. I think they were prodded into it by a radical progressive left that needed a cause, and the cause was radical gender ideology. Going to the very real cases where people are under threat because of being gay, Ted Cruz recently tweeted out in opposition of Uganda's May Bill, which criminalized homosexuality and imposed the death penalty for aggravated homosexuality. Other than calling out that this is wrong and immoral, what is the proper response from Western countries? What should our foreign policy stance be? regarding countries that put in these very punitive criminalization laws? Well, I think it depends on the country you're dealing with. A country like Saudi Arabia is much more delicate because they are a very important security partner in the Middle East. They're a major source of petroleum. They're an important source of stability, you know, countering Iran. So you can't, unfortunately, make human rights the sine qua non of American foreign policy. You can't just cut off relations and cut off aid and weapons sales and security cooperation with Saudi Arabia because they treat gay people badly or they kill a journalist, like they kill journalists. The, the United States can't do that. We can't have the foreign policy of Sweden. Sweden might be able to do that. 
which is one of the reasons why Europeans, I think, they're able to lecture the United States about these things because they're not the most powerful country on earth and they're not a security guarantor. They have the luxury of being able to do that. A country like Uganda, the United States has a lot more freedom to act in terms of sanctions, in terms of the kind of stick we can employ to influence them to behave better. And I would like to see that. And I would expect to see that, especially from this administration. My only concern with that is that I often worry that these sort of policy sanctions end up harming the majority of the Ugandan population who have very little political knowledge, awareness, or even autonomy. They don't have much engagement in their system. You end up penalizing them for the decisions of their far wealthier leaders. And I'm not confident that you end up with a net reduction in harm for doing this. Well, the sanctions should be targeted. I'm not saying that we should be banning you know, the export of food to Uganda, right? You should be sanctioning the individual, the government officials who are implementing this policy. So whoever the minister is, whoever the members of parliament who voted for this and introduced it, maybe we should consider putting a visa ban on them. Maybe we should be putting bank sanctions on them so that they can't deposit funds in U.S. banks or, bank, or banks that we have relationships with. So I think targeted sanctions is, is the way to go. And how impactful have American evangelicals been on the homophobic views in these third world countries? There's a documentary, God Loves Uganda, which suggested that missionaries like Scott Lively seriously affected the country's views and laws. But I don't know if I believe it. I watch it and I sort of think that the documentary filmmakers are believing their own publicity. Oh, yes, we changed this country so much with our views. And it's not as though Africa is a continent that's renowned for its history of gay tolerance. No, and I've written about this in the past. There's a lot of blame diversion that goes particularly towards Britain uh, because of the colonial history. And that you'll often see people writing about homophobia. For instance, like, I think sodomy is still illegal in India. I think it went back and forth. It was repealed. It wasn't... And you'll see people say, oh, this is all because of the British influence on our country. But supposedly India was this like utopia for gay people before the evil, bad British imperialists came and criminalized sodomy. And then that's when everything went and, and that became intolerable. I think that removes a lot of agency from these countries and from these cultures. And we know this because it's been decades since there's been any colonialism anywhere in the world. And these countries still have, have these rules on the book. And they're still, in some places, violently homophobic. Now, you can say that's all because of the colonial influence. But again, I think that removes a lot of agency from the individuals in these societies. If they just do what the big bad British man, white man told him to do and told him to believe. It ignores the existence of cultural taboos that have existed in a lot of these societies for generations and that predate colonial powers. I think a lot of it, frankly, has to do with the lack of freedom of expression. Almost all these countries, almost all these countries that we're talking about where homosexuality is prescribed by law are authoritarian. And gay rights and free expression go hand in hand. It's not just some coincidence that the countries that are the most hospitable to gay people are liberal democracies, right? It's because, goes back to the beginning of our conversation, right? If part of being gay is having to live a secret 
then part of overcoming that is being able to express yourself. And it was solely through the First Amendment and the free expression that it grants freedom of assembly and freedom of expression that gay people were able to explain who they were. Like, we're not pedophiles. We're not national security threats. We're not evil. We're not here to convert your children. They were only able to do that because of the First Amendment. And same in Britain, you know, you have similar provisions for free speech and whatnot, that gay people were able to come out and make their case. And it's no coincidence that you see, you know, what is the manifestation of anti-gay sentiment in Russia? It's a law that bans homosexual propaganda, which is basically saying anything positive about gay people. That's how they're fighting it. So yeah, sodomy is legal. You can, it's gay sex is legal in Russia. It has been for a long time, but promoting homosexuality is illegal. This law in Uganda is similar to that. It goes even further, right? In instituting the death penalty for homosexual sex. But all these countries prohibit free speech across the board. If gay people in Saudi Arabia or any of these countries, if they were allowed to write articles in the newspaper, if they were allowed to portray themselves in television and film, one of the most significant and important ways, by the way, in which gay people were able to kind of change the culture was through television and film. If you're able to see positive portrayals of LGBT characters in mass media in these countries, it would have a huge impact for the better. So I think that's really where the, the fault lies. The common denominator in these homophobic countries, it's not Islam, because Uganda is a Christian country. It's not religion. It's not economic status, rich or poor. It's freedom. It's liberal values. It's the lack of those values. So that's the common denominator, really, ultimately, in gay rights or the lack of them around the world. Speaking of people keeping it a secret, when we look at the history of journalism, we've seen a lot of incidents of the press hiding unflattering personal details about important subjects, where this should have been known, the public should have known this stuff, and we rightfully condemn it. The public should have known about Roosevelt's physical state and Kennedy's physical state and moral state. And the current norm, as I understand it, is that if a personal detail about someone's life is important to understanding who they are, that we have an obligation to tell readers about it. But where does outing fit into that? When do you think it's right to out someone? I think it is only acceptable in very, very rare circumstances, because you never know what's going on in someone's life that they might be wanting to keep this a secret. They might have a family member who would stop talking to them, who might kick them out, who might cut them off. And it's not for me as a third party to intervene in that very sensitive relationship between a gay person and someone who's important to them. No matter what I might think about it, personally, I would say, if I have a family member who doesn't accept I'm gay, then that's their problem. That's not for me to tell another gay person how they go about their lives. So it's a very, very important sacred thing really is is a gay person revealing that fact about themselves. Like the only case really where it is arguably defensible is someone in a position of power who is using that power to hurt other gay people. A congressman who votes on a bill that could be perceived as anti-gay, maybe that's a, maybe, but look, if he's one of 435 votes, and if he's not going around saying anything about it, he just kind of passively votes for something, I'm not sure that that's justifiable. 
someone like Ted Haggard, who was a Christian evangelical minister Mm -hmm. who was using his pulpit every week to denigrate gay people while, you know, paying for the services of a gay prostitute. That, I think, was a defensible outing. But those are rare. It's a very high threshold. After the break, we'll have some quick questions with Jamie Kerchick. Quick questions. First, the space lawyer Peyton Alexander proposes that, quote, Pride should be a single day, June 26th, when Lawrence, Windsor, and Oberfell were handed down. Do you agree? I didn't even realize that was the day that they were both handed down, which also happens to coincide with a day of the Stonewall riots. I think it was 26 to 29. Yeah, I think Pride Day would make it more meaningful. It's been diluted of a lot of its meaning and purpose. It's just become this kind of corporate extravaganza. And making it a single day that has such historic significance as that, I think would be very meaningful. Was Abraham Lincoln gay? Did he have gay sex? I think it's quite possible that he did. But we're basing this on letters, correspondence from over 150 years ago. The language was very different back then. People were much more expressive. Men shared beds on the frontier in the 1820s, which is when he supposedly had a relationship with Joshua Speed. It's possible that he had gay sex. Was he gay? Did he understand himself as a gay man? I think that's a question we'll never know. Was Larry Kramer right about gay licentiousness? In his time and place, yes, he was. He was. With hindsight, how should we judge the activism of Peter Tatchell? I admire him in many ways. For the, he's been active on so many issues, it's hard to even narrow it down. Going after Robert Mugabe was courageous and getting beaten up by Mugabe's bodyguards, going to Russia and standing alongside Russian gay people and getting beaten up by Russian fascists. I mean, the guy's taken beatings. He's really put his life on the line. And he really has that kind of old-fashioned, left-wing sense of solidarity that cuts across national borders, religious divisions. He's always out there protesting for some benighted people, some forgotten people around the world. That's been all to the good. So some of the outings that he did in the 90s of certain individuals might not have been appropriate. I think he was outing Anglican priests at a time when they were not admitting gay clergy. But I think largely he's been, and look, he stood up to Ken Livingston. He was on to the corporatization of the Labour Party within the left. He was outspoken against a lot of it earlier than people realize, because he was very outspoken Ken Livingston when he was mayor of London for inviting, I remember writing about this, he was very chummy with this Sheikh Karadawi who was, who was a Qatari anti-Semite homophobe and just the worst of the left-wing sympathy for right-wing Islamic creatures, which was a strange, people will look back on that era after 9-11, the, the 10 years after 9-11, very strange alliances were built between the far left and what we would consider the far right, but they had brown skin, so apparently they weren't considered far right. And Peter Tatt was very outspoken about that, so I have a lot of time for him. Do you believe the claims of Scotty Bowers? I'm not sure I believe what he had to say about J. Edgar Hoover. I think J. Edgar Hoover was probably celibate his entire life. But I, yeah, I think Scotty Bowers was largely telling the truth. Was Rock Hudson's death a significant moment for the country's awareness of AIDS, or is this a sort of revisionism? Oh, no, I think it was probably the most significant in terms of public perception, because up until that point, 
AIDS was a disease that was affecting homosexuals, hemophiliacs, and then also heroin users. All those people could kind of be forgotten and excluded and not really given any concern. And then you had this matinee idol, this internationally renowned film star. And that definitely woke people up. So yeah, no, it was a huge moment. How should we remember Bayard Rustin? Bayard Rustin is one of the great moral figures of the 20th century. One of the most important behind-the-scenes players in the civil rights movement as a strategist. And again, Martin Luther King was obviously out front and center. It was obviously an incredible orchard. But you had Rustin behind the scenes organizing this, going back decades earlier, before King emerged, he was on the scene. His views on race in America, you know, so prescient. And he was a real foe of, for lack of a better term, identity politics. I think he understood that he was really trying to forge a working class movement that would cut across racial division and racial barriers, because uh, he was a socialist. And he understood that people had more in common due to their shared class than they did because of their race, necessarily. I think that's a view that's very unfashionable on the left today, but I think it's the correct one. And he was an ardent foe of black nationalism for that reason. He was an ardent foe of anti-Semitism, a strong supporter of the state of Israel, an ardent foe of oppression anywhere, whether it was Soviet left-wing oppression or right-wing authoritarian oppression. And he advocated for people who were oppressed all over the world, no matter who was doing the oppressing. And the fact that he did this all while he was an openly gay man in the 1960s, that was a big deal. To be an openly gay black man made him an extreme... In a Christian movement, largely, too. Yeah, in a Christian movement. Yeah, so he's really one of my all-time heroes. Speaking of heroes, how does George Santos fit into the history and norms of gay Washington? Um, how do I answer that question? Impolitely. Yeah. Well, he's definitely like a diva. He's definitely a bitch. I do find it somewhat heartening that his homosexuality does not seem to be playing a huge role in this. You don't see many people, you know, pointing to the fact that, oh, he's gay. And I think there's a reason for this. Look, because the fact that he's very openly gay, he's never denied. And in fact, I mean, he married a woman at some point, right? I'm not sure if that's an immigration thing, though. Yeah, it may have been an immigration thing. In an earlier era, he would have fit a certain archetype of a gay liar. Because all gay people, for some part of their lives, have to lie about who they are. And so in an earlier era, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, I mean, you still come across people like this because, look, gay people are better by their nature. They become liars. That's why coming out of the closet is so important because you're no longer living a lie. But for those who persist in it, they can be very destructive. And so I could have seen an alternate scenario decades earlier where a closeted Santos type, he's very much a kind of Tom Ripley character of just a pathological liar, of which, again, if he had been closeted, and this had been decades ago, his homosexuality would have been an element of that. It would have been pointed to as an element of this broader tableau of lies, that he's living a lie, he's pretending to be someone he's not. Not only is he pretending to be a millionaire who went to all these schools and has all these achievements, he's also lying about his very essence, which is that he's actually a closeted homosexual, pretending something he's not. But it's kind of a relief in a way 
that he's this kind of larger than life. He's almost becomes a gay stereotype. He did drag. He's on Twitter issuing comments about RuPaul's drag race. So I'm kind of relieved that he's very much openly gay and doesn't deny that. I'm very proud of it, actually, because in an earlier era, he would have been a very kind of sinister type of maneuvering, manipulative homosexual, devious, sinister, queer, which is very much going back to like Guy Burgess, who was also openly gay, but like the kind of sinister, secretive homosexual is it's a trope in Hollywood movies of a certain era. And he would have fit that very much. But for the fact that he's very much openly gay, he doesn't fit that archetype. Why does anyone respect Glad? Well, I think they exercise a lot of insolence in the media business because if you don't meet their criteria of representation, then they will issue reports and condemn you, whether you're a movie studio, a television network. If you don't have enough gay characters or trans characters in a television show or a film, never mind if it's appropriate, right? Like not every movie and film needs to have gay characters, okay? Leave that up to the creators. Let creators create. There's no shortage of very highly talented gay, lesbian, and straight people, by the way, working in these creative industries who are not bigoted or homophobic. They just want to be able to create. And in some cases, their characters will be gay. Hopefully, you know, they'll be gay and maybe being gay won't even be an aspect of their life in the film. It's just sort of a, this character's gay and it's not a central component to the plot. It's just, you know, maybe 30 years ago, the character would have been straight. Now it's gay and it doesn't matter. And I think we're getting there on our own and we don't need outside ideological pressure from activist groups telling artists what to create. I think it's a really bad phenomenon, whether it's the government that's telling artists what they can and cannot create or pressure groups on the outside. I think that individuals should be allowed to follow their own creative inspiration and they should not be told what they can and cannot do. Should the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence hold a hunky Muhammad competition on Ramadan? Huh. That's a good question. I don't think they should. They certainly wouldn't, which tells you everything. It's also the reason why there's no Book of Muhammad on Broadway. What do you think of the 1961 film Victim? I think it's a terrific film. It's obviously very dated. It's very of its time. The whole issue is sort of gestured at. I'm not sure what the rules were in Britain at the time in terms of depicting homosexuality on screen. I know in America, they weren't able to do it explicitly until the following year, 1962, with advised and consent. But I thought it dealt with the issue in a very humane way. And it depicted gay men as, the title implies, victims. They were victims in that movie of a blackmail ring. And I think it humanized that. And I think it was actually a very influential film. I know played an important role in drawing public attention to the issue. Having met the man, what's your impression of Army Hammer, the person? He's a very charismatic guy who has dealt with a terrible situation and in a way that I found almost inspiring, really. I mean, to lose everything you have, not just your career, your wealth, your status, but your reputation. He became a punching bag and a punchline, really. And when I met him and interviewed him and corresponded with him, he's at peace with it. He's moved on and he's been able to find meaning in what he's gone through and to retain his optimism in life. And I think it's remarkable. I think the fact that he has young children has a lot to do with that because he has people to live for. 
And just a couple of weeks ago, the LAPD said it would not be pressing charges against him. So he's basically been legally exonerated. And you compare the amount of attention that that report got with the amount of attention that all of the accusations against him received. And I think it's really hard not to feel somewhat bad for him. Even people who might not have liked him or think that what he acknowledged doing with these women was terrible. It's hard to say that he deserved what he got. Speaking of redemption, should Kanye West be redeemable? And what would a good path for that be? He would have to apologize and he would have to really sincerely apologize. And I don't even know what that would look like. And I also don't know how much of what he's been saying about Jews, about black people. I mean, all the, you take all the crazy things he said. I don't know how much of it has to do with his mental state. He's clearly not a mentally well person. So it's going to be a very difficult process for him to redeem himself. How will history remember Angela Merkel? That's a good question. Overrated, extremely overrated, both on the issue of Russia, where I actually overrated her myself, because I, at least in the early years of the Ukraine conflict, I credited her with a strong European response, but in retrospect was not strong enough. I also credited the fact that she was born and raised in East Germany and had a real knowledge of communism, living under communism. She spoke Russian fluently and had a, what I thought was a very clear-eyed understanding of Putin. But clearly in retrospect, she was weak on Russia. Her position on the Nord Stream pipeline was completely wrong. And so I think on Russia, the issue that I gave her more credit for, I think, than anything else as a leader, I think she underperformed. At the same time, it's hard to imagine another German leader being stronger on Russia. That's the thing, right? Her successor has left a lot to be desired himself, but I do think she's overrated on that. And I think her position on the migrant issue I've written about, lots of other people have written about, was something that pretty much everyone agrees in Germany should not be repeated again. But I was writing payons to her when Trump was elected. I was saying that free world rested in Angela Merkel's hands. That's what a lot of people, that's what a lot of us thought. And I think like a lot of things that were written in the early months and years during that early period of when Trump emerged in our politics, I think a lot of us wrote and said things that we look back on and say, I might want to take that back. I certainly have. And I think my phrase, my sort of unadulterated praise of Angela Merkel is something that I would moderate now. Looking back, how should have the U.S. supported Ukraine in 2014? There should have been much stronger sanctions on Russia in terms of gas and oil. You know, Nord Stream should have been shut down promptly. We should have armed the Ukrainians to the teeth. We should have redeployed American forces to Poland's frontline states. We should have scrapped the NATO-Russia founding act, which was an agreement that limited troop presence along the Russian border. I would like to think that that would have staved off a full-scale Russian invasion. I'm not sure, but I think it could have, possibly. Has the war in Ukraine strengthened or weakened the general state of Europe? I think it's actually strengthened it. I think you look at the public support among European populations for the defense of Ukraine is up. You've seen Finland and hopefully Sweden, if the Turks and the Hungarians get over themselves, joining NATO, which is a huge, huge development in two countries where there was overwhelming opposition. These were two neutral countries that opposed NATO membership like that overnight switched. And I think the West is stronger with them in NATO, but we'll see how long it lasts. You know, I mean, 
the war is a far off prospect for most people. I don't think it's something that most Europeans are feeling in their daily lives. Fortunately, the political situation is as you know, the Czech Republic is elected pro-Western, pro-NATO leadership. And there was some doubt there. And in some other countries, they've all been moving in the right direction. Even the kind of far right leader of Italy, Maloney, is very pro-Ukraine. So it's been impressive so far. Has Ron Paul had a bigger impact on the populist rights than Trump? His newsletters normalize the outrage, then flatly deny strategy. And he made isolationism acceptable to the Republican Party when, at the time, it had been a huge position. I don't think he was more influential because I think he was such an oddball, very uncharismatic personality. And he had these other weird beliefs that kind of alienated him from the Republican base. I mean, for instance, well, the gold bug stuff which kind of just went over most people's heads. But he also was not, I don't know if he was open borders, but he never made immigration an issue. And I think that's ultimately what propelled Trump. But I do think Ron Paul sort of laid the groundwork in some way, certainly with kind of the conspiracy theorizing. But Trump had just a much broader appeal. I mean, Paul appealed to political obsessive types, people who were reading Murray Rothbard and peep in the comment sections of obscure libertarian websites. He was a political obsessive. And he appealed to political obsessors, whereas Trump had appealed to people who watched professional wrestling, and that's where they knew him from. He's had a much, much broader appeal. He kind of took some of Paul's ideas and personality quirks, but just magnified them and made them more palatable to a wider audience. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of South Africa? Oh, very pessimistic. Yeah, very pessimistic. Look, it's basically a one-party state. And you have a country, you have a political party that believes that it is the state and should be the state and behaves in very liberal ways that is deeply influenced, maybe not economically, but certainly philosophically by communism and Marxism and those principles. I mean, the ANC is in, is in a formal alliance with the South African Communist Party and has been for decades. So yeah, as long as you have a one-party state, which is basically what South Africa is and has been since the transition. I don't see things getting better. You just, you know, the daily headlines are very bad. Do you still own your famous rainbow suspenders? I do. They're in my closet, actually. You know, I haven't worn them since, but... <laughs> you could sell them probably for a lot of money. Yeah, I'm not there yet where I need to do that, but that's a good idea. Why are there no good gay magazines? There are good and bad reasons for that. I would say a good reason for that is because... If you're a gay person and you want to write about gay subject, you can do that anywhere. And, you know, someone like Andrew Sullivan really led the way on that, writing about gay stuff all the time for the New Republic and on the New York Times Magazine, right? It used to be that there are really smart, talented gay writers who wanted to write about gay literature, gay art, gay history. The mainstream media, even the liberal mainstream media, even the New York Times considered that still, right? And it was too niche of a subject. So if you were like a gay art historian and you wanted to write about the influence of homosexuality in Western art, which is a very legitimate, fascinating topic, the only place you could do that was in maybe Christopher Street Magazine, right? Or these small kind of niche publications. So the fact that mainstream audiences, straight people are now more interested in those subjects, it's a great change, right? And it's a great time to be a gay writer or a person interested in writing about Actuality. You can write about those subjects for most places now. So that's part of the reason is that there's no longer a need like there used to be for it. So that's the good reason. I said the bad reason is because of that, the remaining publications have become so niche. 
that they've actually become more small-minded. They only see themselves as speaking to a very niche audience of gay people who are only interested in gay things, as opposed to like, let's, let's have a magazine for a general gay audience, but that is a broad-minded audience and that wants to read about broader topics. You know, some of this audience is going to be conservative, right? Or libertarian, right? So let's not have a very dogmatic doctrinaire left-wing agenda and how we cover things because gay people come in all shapes and sizes and all political ideologies. And unfortunately, the gay press today is so doctrinaire and dogmatically left-wing. It's only speaking to that portion of the gay community. So yeah, if you're a gay writer, let's say you're not even interested in politics, let's say you're apolitical, then who would you write for? You wouldn't want to write for the gay press. Do you write for a mainstream outlet? On a more positive aspect, who are the greatest editors working today? The greatest editors? Well, I have to obviously say Alana Newhouse, the editor-in-chief of Tablet Magazine. Her husband, David Samuels, literary editor of Tablet Magazine. Graydon Carter, who's my editor at Airmail, who's a legend. Those are the editors that I work with most closely. I'm trying to think of other kind of publications I read. I mean, the problem is that magazines don't really exist anymore. Magazines used to be very much an expression of an editor's sensibility. An editor would very much implant their sensibility on a publication. So, you know, Andrew Sullivan's New Republic was very different from Michael Kinsley's New Republic. Tina Brown's New Yorker was very different from David Remnick, New Yorker. And editors, so as magazines have declined, the role of the editor as a kind of visionary who would present you, the reader, with a way of thinking about the world every week or every month, that role has really almost disappeared. I mean, it would be too predictable for me to say David Remnick. That would be obvious. And he's obviously a great editor. As much as I might may disagree with some of his political views or whatever, he clearly is, I think, like the last of that generation. That's one type of editor. There are other editors who are just excellent line editors. It's working with an individual writer on a piece. And I've been privileged to work with some very talented editors of that type. One of the greatest editors died last week, Robert Gottlieb, who just read about the authors that he worked with. It's incredible. He edited The New Yorker for five years, too, on top of that. And I don't think they make them like that anymore. I've mentioned a bunch of people who are old, you know, older have just died. I don't know if we're going to be able to produce editors of that quality because magazine, as I grew up, loving magazines. I was a magazine hound and would just collect them and read them cover to cover. And they don't really exist anymore. And it's really sad. I mean, it's part of the reason why I'm so pressed about the future of this business. It's changing a lot. And there have been good aspects of the way that it's changed, obviously. There's so many more opportunities for people than there used to be. But we've lost a lot, I think, in the death of magazines. I think Fraser Nelson is a great editor of The Spectator which I think is a great, lively magazine, and he's really done a fantastic job. I think he's been there for almost 15 years. Which top-tier publications would you recommend that you regularly read, but you think are underappreciated and underread? You can't say Airmail. That's my choice. <laughs> well, thank you. I agree. I think Airmail is becoming kind of more known, and I'm not sure it's under... It, it's fair to say it's underread. Of course, every, everything you love is underread. Oh, that's a good question. Harper's is quite good. Do, do, do Substacks count? Yeah. I really like, he's not a publication. He's a writer, Freddie DeBoer, who's politically very different from me. He's a socialist, but I think he's just a fantastic writer. 
I'm trying to think about other publications. I'm reading less and less. You know, I read the Wall Street Journal every morning. That's not underread. That's the highest circulation newspaper in the country. But I find myself reading more books now because of this decline of magazines. I don't find the magazine as, as appealing. Digital, I read the places I write for. I read tablet. I read airmail. I read the Wall Street Journal. I read the Times and the Post when I need to, but not on a regular basis. And I don't, yeah. And then I read books. So I'm trying to spend more time reading books. Final three questions. Who is the most important person who listeners likely haven't heard of? In the world? However you want to take that question. Working, alive, in history, gay history, and Jewish history, wherever you want to go. Oh my God. Most important person people haven't heard of. Wow, you really strung that army here. That's like two big qualifiers. Well, people probably forget him. So maybe Arthur Schlesinger who was a historian. He was derided as the court historian of the Kennedy administration. But, you know, looking back in the work that I did on Secret City, he was a very important figure. He wrote a book that was very important in 1949 called The Vital Center, which I've been going back to recently because I feel like the message that he was conveying, the arguments he was making in that book is sort of newly relevant. This was after World War II, was just getting into the Cold War but also seeing the rise of McCarthyism was waiting in the wings. And he was coming out and arguing for a vital center. America was trying to figure out what its role should be. You had a lot of people who were on the left who were underplaying or ignoring the threat of communism. And then you had people on the right who were exploiting that, like McCarthy would. And it was this very perilous dynamic in American politics. And Schlesinger was arguing for a vital center one that acknowledged the importance of liberal democracy and the threats posed from both the left and the right to liberal democracy. And I feel like now we're in a similar situation where we have extremes, forces on both sides are feeding off each other and the center's collapsing. And I think we need a new kind of argument for a new vital center. And so I've just been thinking a lot about Arthur Schlesinger and the kind of arguments he made and the role he played in American letters and politics. He was a very kind of like bon vivant. He you know, went to cocktail parties and knew lots of fascinating celebrities and intellectuals. And he wrote history books and he was an interesting character. What book would you recommend that most listeners will not have read or perhaps even heard of? Well, it's one of my favorite novels, but I'm assuming your listeners might have heard of it. The Line of Beauty by Alan Hollyhurst. It won the Booker Prize, so it's pretty well known but it's one of, my, one of my top novels. And final question, where can people find you and what are you currently working on? People can find me on Twitter, I guess, although I don't really tweet that much, at Jay Kerchik. And what am I working on? Yeah, I'm working on pieces for tablet and airmail that I can't really divulge. And I'm thinking of a second book topic because that's what I kind of want to constantly be doing is working on books, but I haven't settled on anything yet. So that's taking a lot of time just sitting here, you know, sitting and thinking and contemplating and trying to come up with something. I have ideas, but I haven't settled on anything. Are you looking for something you'll do shorter or are you looking for another 10-year project? Oh, I don't think I can stomach another massive history tome now. So yeah, all the ideas I have are significantly shorter. Jamie Kershick, thank you for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and family and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you really loved it, you can become a supporter at arguablypod.com. For just £5 a month or £50 a year, you'll get access to new episodes a week early, 
participate in our Q&A episodes, and join the comment section. You can follow the podcast at arguably underscore pod on Twitter or arguably pod at Instagram. And you can follow myself everywhere where people are followed as at that Ross chat. Thank you again.